0: Let's pray together. As we do, I just want to return to some of the words that Steve read for us a moment ago from Psalm 145. You know, we had communion, which is a time of remembering what Christ has done for us. Even this very simple song we've just sung is also a song of remembrance and gratitude to Jesus Christ for what he's done for us. And that's exactly what was read for us a moment ago in Psalm 145. It says, One generation shall praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts. And then David says this, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, because of who you are, and he says, and on your wonderful wor- wonderful works, that is, because of what he's done, I will meditate. David says, I'm going to take some time and think about who God is, and what he's like, and what he's done for me, and what I want to do just before I pray for all of us as we go to the word is just invite you for a moment, just in quietness, in your own heart, To do what David says there, meditate on who God is and what he's done. I would just encourage you, not worrying about what's going on next to you, in front of you, or behind you. Even just as you think over the last seven days since we were last together as brothers and sisters to worship, how has God been good to you? Maybe it's not been a great week, but has he been good to you anyway? Are there wonderful works of God on which you can meditate? You know, if you've got nothing else, if you're coming up empty, I don't know what he did for me this week. uh, You do remember we just celebrated the cross, amen? And he did that for you. So here's what I want to invite you to do just for a few moments while the music plays, and I'll stop talking, just to say, Lord, I, I praise you because I saw your wonderful works, Lord, this week or today, or I was reminded this morning of the wonderful thing you did for me when how you blessed, how you took care, how you provided, how you comforted. Just in your own words, in the quietness of your own heart, tell God where you saw Him at work in your life this week and and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, oh my Father. This is just your moment in the quiet to praise Him for how He has cared for you. Father, we spend so much time talking. We spend time talking about you, speaking of you, talking to you, singing of you. All these things are good, but Father, it's not often that we truly just pause and meditate on who you are on the great things that you've done on the incredible Redeemer that Jesus Christ is. Father, I think our lives, I know my life would feel so much less cluttered if I did a whole lot more of that. Father, if we could just learn to be quiet in your presence. Just remember that you are a good and faithful God, that you have done wonderful things. Father, that even if we had not one other blessing we could count, much less 10,000 as we sang a moment ago, we have the cross. Father, the cross is what rescues us from sin and eternal separation. The cross is what brings us into a Relationship, where you're our heavenly Father. It's the cross that knits our heart together. Father, in this room, there's not a ton of us, but but no two of us are exactly alike. Maybe we don't have anything in common with, with almost anybody else here, but we have the most important thing in common, and that is Jesus. Father, I pray that as we have sung your praise, as we've been to communion, and now as we open your word, Father, that it really would be Jesus on whom our thoughts and our hearts and our minds settle and rest. Father, not because we want to hear what a preacher has to say, and not because I have anything spectacular to say, but because Jesus is worthy of our undivided attention. And Father, my prayer, my plea is that as I share with my brothers and sisters and friends what what I've found in your word this week, that it wouldn't be me they're listening to, but through the preaching of your word they would be listening for you, the one who speaks to us in the secret places of the heart, to convict and to comfort, to strengthen and encourage And so, Father, we ask for your help. We thank you that that the help has a name, the Holy Spirit. The one you said, it's better if I go away so the helper, the Holy Spirit, can come, and he'll guide you into all truth, and he'll remind you of the things you need to know. And, Father, we're banking on that promise right now, that your Holy Spirit, who lives within us and dwells among us, is going to come be our teacher. That he's the one who will guide us in truth. That he is the one who will guard us from error. He is the one who will deliver us from distraction. And that he's the one who opens our eyes and our hearts to see Jesus. Father, may we see the Lord Jesus clearly this morning in your word. And may we see him only this morning in your word. When we leave in a little while, let it be rejoicing. Because we came together, we sang some songs and we heard a sermon. But most of all, Father, we sat at the feet of the one who loved us enough to die. In our place and rise again. Jesus, in whose name all of God's people together said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. While you're taking your seats, as always, we'll let the boys and girls slip out for Children's Church. If you've got kiddos who want to be part of that today, we encourage them, we invite them uh, to be part of Children's Church. Five years old up through second grade, a great time for them to go. Just feed on God's Word and, and be together as we seek to do here as well. If you've got a Bible, I want you to take it out and turn in it with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. Specifically, I want you to find your way to Mark chapter 5, where we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Mark chapter 5. And and as you're turning there, I'm just going to throw this in. Um, We didn't do it in announcements, and and on on second thought, we probably should have. But just to let you know, uh, last Sunday, um, if you were here, you know we had a very challenging Uh, a very important message from Mark Moyer, and he was challenging us to serve and to get out and put our faith into action. And there's a whole lot about that I appreciate. And I want you to know that we have an opportunity to do that today. Some of you know this, others of you don't. And again, should have mentioned this earlier, but I'm gonna mention it now because I can. Uh, Today is the one Sunday every month where we have our very specific and what has become a very fruitful neighborhood outreach ministry is our Abundant Life Food Distribution. It's over in the Commons starting at one o'clock till three o'clock, and uh, we can always use more hands there. And I want to tell you, I've only gotten to be part of that once. I fully intend to, Lord willing, be part of it today. But if you haven't been or even if you had, I want I, I want you to seriously consider coming and helping. Not just because we can use more hands, but because we can use more hearts and prayers and smiles. And if we're serious about reaching this neighborhood, here's one way where the neighborhood is actually coming to see us. And we can show them the love of Jesus in action. So if you've got even just part of that time... I encourage you to come. I know it would be a great encouragement to to, to those coordinating it, but it'd be also a great blessing to those who are coming because they're in need. And most of all, we know what they need is Jesus, just as we all once did. So if you've got time today, come be part of that. I think you'll be really, really glad that you did. Again, just in the vein of remembering what it's all about is taking what we get here, and as we're going to talk about this morning, taking it uh, into this world to those who need it. So with that said, I hope you found your way to Mark chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading it. In just a moment. It's a lengthy passage, uh, so I'm just going to invite your attention to that. But before we do, I want to to share with you something that was once said about 120 years ago by the great Dutch theologian, also happened to be the Dutch prime minister. Imagine that, uh, that uh, two-for-one special theologian and prime minister, what we wouldn't give for something like that. But he once famously said, Abraham Kuyper, once famously said, it's been repeated many times and in varied ways, he said, quote, there is not one square inch, in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Let me say that again. And as I say it, of course, I want to have it as it is already on the screen behind me so you can see it with your eyes as you hear it with your ears. Listen again to the depth of this statement. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine, mine. And what Kuyper was saying there, it's just another way, it's actually a more profound way of of affirming what we, as followers of the Son, Jesus Christ, already believe. And that is this, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Amen? Amen. Say it with me, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And this morning we are in a, a portion of Mark's Gospel. As we began a couple of weeks ago, and it will continue for the next couple of weeks, where Jesus is demonstrating his lordship over all in some pretty spectacular ways. We're now in a section of of miracles, a selection of miracles that Mark uh, drew out of the story, of the true story of Jesus' life and ministry. And what each of these miracles do is they demonstrate, they illustrate the authority of Jesus Christ over a certain dimension of life on this planet. For example... Two weeks ago, we looked at the first miracle. It was the miracle of Jesus in a boat at night, calming the what? Calmed the what? You were here, right? What did he calm? The storm. Very good. He calmed the storm. And the big picture message of that miracle is Jesus is Lord of creation. There's not one square inch of the created world over which Jesus Christ is not in control and in authority. Well, this morning, there's another miracle, very different miracle, Meant to teach or reveal or illustrate another dimension of Jesus' lordship and his authority. Whereas last time it was his lordship over creation. This time, this morning, the the miracle we are about to look at illustrates, it demonstrates the authority, the lordship of Jesus Christ over the problem of evil. The reality and the presence of evil in our planet and in our on our planet and in our lives. Story begins in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It goes down through verse 20. Again, a kind of a long passage, so I invite you to do your best to pay attention and follow along with me as we walk through it once, and then we'll go through it again. This is what the Word of God says. Mark tells us, they, that is, Jesus and the disciples, they're still in the boat. He just calmed the storm. They came to the other side of the sea, Lake Galilee, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he, Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he, this man, had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, Now this would be the evil spirit speaking through him. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, the spirit in this man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, Jesus was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, Jesus, saying, "'Send us into the swine so that we may enter them.' Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened." They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. But Jesus didn't let him. But he said to him, go home to your people, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he, the man, went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now the big picture message of that miracle of that story is this, Jesus is in authority over evil. There's not an evil thing, there's not a wicked thing, there's not a sinful thing that happens on this planet of which Jesus is not Lord over and in charge of. Evil is not a sign that he has somehow lost his grip, lost control, missed out somehow. Jesus is Lord over everything on the planet, even the problem of evil is not beyond his control. That's the big picture. But under that big picture, under that umbrella, if you will, in this story, there there is some, some really important, I believe vitally important, very significant truths and realities that we need to remember, that we need to be able to call to mind when we are confronted with evil in this world too. There are some things here we can take from this story that are very, very relevant to the lives we live in the world we are in today. And the first one is this. It's foundational. It's elemental. We cannot miss it. It's this. Number one, our plight, our lives, our existence on this planet are hopeless without Jesus Christ. Our plight on this planet is hopeless without Jesus Christ. You know, you don't need me to tell you, all you need to do is read the news this week, that that the big picture problem of evil, in the big picture, the problem of evil on our planet is overwhelming. Overwhelming. We just go down one story after another, after another, after another of how could that happen and what a tragedy and I mean, it, it's all right there and you know it as well as I do and it's overwhelming, the big picture problem of evil. But you know, what we, we see in this story is a case of evil personified, okay? And and I would contend, I would suggest to you that in certain respects, that's even more overwhelming still. It's one thing to read about evil on the news. It's one thing to witness it and weep over it and pray about it, which we should be doing. No question about it. However, when evil is personified, when evil is present in the life of a person right in front of you, that's more overwhelming still. How are we going to deal with this? What do we do with someone who is, is, is in some way under the control of or dealing with or dealing with the impact of evil? That's what Jesus is dealing with here, evil personified. Because while verse 2 says, I want you to look at this. It says, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Your Bible may say an evil spirit or a, a demonic spirit. The way he's described a little bit further down in verse 16, and again in verse 18, gives us more insight. It says, my Bible says that he was demon-possessed in verse 16. Demon-possessed, verse 18. Yours may render it differently. The literal meaning of the word is demonized. And we can quibble over demon-possessed, demon oppressed, whatever it is. Uh, The fact of the matter is this. What we are being told about this particular man is that he is under the influence of a power he can't control. He's under the influence of something he can't control. And while it was an extreme case, right, compare, I mean, we've seen Jesus already in the gospel of Mark deal with demonized people. This is an extreme case. You look at verse 9, Jesus was asking him, what's your name? And he said, my name is Legion, because there's a whole lot of us in here. There's a, a whole bunch of us in control ruling this man's life. This is an extreme case. You know, but at the same time, when I read and reread and reread verses three and four, I thought of something. My mind, because this, this is what we're told about the man. Verse three, look at your Bible. He had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with the chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And I read that and reread that, and you know where my mind immediately went? Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul, some of you know it well, others may not be familiar, but where Paul talks about me, and Paul talks about you, and he says, guess what, guys, you, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? That's the message, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all everybody say all. all. We all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, this guy's a lot like me. Or or better, I'm a lot like him. Because again, what's Mark telling us? Uh, The the message of this story is this man is living under the influence of a power he can't control. It's called evil. It's called sin. He can't control it. And by the way, when it talks about all the talk in verses 3 and 4 about broken shackles and broken chains, uh, that's, that's a literal truth. He had, in fact, we would believe Mark, broken those chains. But it's also a picture. It's a picture of human attempts, perhaps his own, certainly those of others, to control the sin problem in his life. And the chains failed. Because all of our attempts to control the sin in our life, ultimately they fail. You can't control the sin in your life, and neither can I. And that's the picture being painted here of a problem, a sin problem, an evil problem that can't be controlled. And when you go through, if you were to go through what we're told about this man even more, in even more depth, line by line, verse by verse, you, you, what you begin to realize is that in this particular man's case, again, it's extreme, but, but it did the same things to him that it does to you and me. The sin problem in his life he couldn't control. It left him physically wounded, mentally broken, emotionally shattered, and relationally isolated. In other words, no hope. It's a man with no hope. That's the bottom line. And in that way, he's just like you and just like me, apart from Jesus Christ. Enslaved to a power we can't control and without hope. By the way, It is not irrelevant, incidental, that Mark tells us he made his dwelling among the tombs. What's he telling us? He was dead in his trespasses and sins. Alive physically, dead spiritually. Living death. That's the picture that this man's life gives us. Someone just like us without Jesus Christ. A hopeless plight. And his hopeless plight also shows us a second thing that we must understand as we acknowledge, we confront, we grapple with the reality of evil in the world and more importantly, evil that enters into our lives and it is this, number two. Not only is our plight hopeless without Christ, our adversary is no joke. Our adversary, our enemy as believers is no joke. You know, in conversations about Satan, the devil, all things demonic that, that we find in the scriptures. You know, I have found, and again, this is not original to me by any stretch of the imagination, but in most cases, believers, the, the, maybe the world at large, but certainly believers, we tend to gravitate uh, toward one of two extremes when it comes to the world of Satan and demons and all that. One is an unhealthy obsession. I mean, I'm just seeing a demon behind every bush and under every rock and behind every music stand every time I stub my toes because Satan made me do it right. I mean, there's this unhealthy obsession that demons are responsible for everything. The other end of the spectrum is flat dismissal. (laughs) It's your imagination. There's not really evil. I mean, there's not really a a being called Satan. There's not really something we have to worry about. And I would say to you, in no uncertain terms, not only are both of those two extremes unbiblical, they're also extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Because what the Bible shows, literally, from cover to cover, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of, of Revelation, is we do have an enemy. We do have an adversary. His name is Satan. In fact, his name, Satan, means adversary, enemy, opponent. And and what the Bible says, sometimes in the form of teaching, and other times by way of illustration in the the activities of, of the lives of some of the great heroes of our faith, is that he has all the elements of personality. He's not a force. He's not a mist. He's not some sort of presence. He's a person. He's a created being. He has a personality. He has an intellect. And and the Bible says he's really, really smart. He has a will. He has an agenda. He has power. Not as much power as Jesus, but a whole lot more than us. And, And the Bible tells us specifically in the New Testament, says some things about him. In various places, he's described as an accuser, as a tempter, as a liar, as Jesus called him, a murderer from the beginning. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter tells us he's on a mission. Here's what it is. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And can I just say he was doing a fine job of it here? (laughs) Look at verse 5. Look at what your Bible says. Constantly, night and day, this man, under the influence of demonic oppression, possession, spirits, was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, gashing himself with stones, literally hammering away at the image of God in his life, destroying himself. Now, here in verses 6 and 7, we get a glimpse of the conflict. It says, seeing Jesus from a distance, he, this man, ran up and bowed down before him. Now, I would suggest, I may be wrong, but I'm going to suggest to you that that's the man He sees Jesus, here's my way out. Here's my hope, right? Maybe he can help me because nobody else can. But to see the the war that's going on uh, in this man's life, he goes to Jesus, he runs up and bows before him, but this ain't him talking in verse seven. This is the spirit shouting with a loud voice. He said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God. If it were the man, he'd say, rescue me, save me. The spirit says, don't torment me. Leave me alone. Go away. Now, I don't know why verse 8 seems to say that it took Jesus several tries to get these demons out. I'm not sure about that. That's a kind of a question. My hunch, my guess, in fact, I know it's not a Jesus problem. It's not that Jesus didn't have the power to do it. Jesus didn't even need to speak if he wanted these demons out. He just, and they're gone. But the reason I think it says that he was, if you look at the language, my Bible renders it, he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus is trying to illustrate something to the disciples and whoever else is watching, and that is the extent of satanic power. The extent of the grip, the depth of the grip that these evil spirits had in the man's life. This isn't for Jesus' sake, it's for theirs. Guys, here, here's, here's the reality of our adversary. Here's what he can do to a person. That's my guess, my understanding. But whatever the case... When it goes on, then, in verse 11, just follow 11, 12, and 13, there was a, it says, they began to implore him, hey, don't, don't send us out of the country, verse 11, so there was a large herd of swine, there were pigs feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons begged Jesus, saying, send us into the swine, so that we may enter them, and Jesus gave them permission, who's in charge? Jesus. And coming out, it says, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, here's what I think is going on there. And there, can I just say, I should have said this at the beginning. There's all kinds of questions you're going to have about this passage. I am not going to answer today. There's so much going on here that we don't. We just don't even have time to get into. But what I do want to emphasize is happening here is this: that act of Jesus casting the demonic influence, out of this man and and into a herd of 2,000 swine, again, I think the big idea there is that he's trying to demonstrate the the destructive power of Satan, the extent of the oppression in this man's life. My name is Legion, for we are many. But also this fact, that that if those demonic forces, beings, couldn't destroy the man, they were going to destroy something, because that's what demonic forces do. They destroy Jesus saying, look, we're not playing games here. There's a war going on that we can't see. And I think the idea is simply, if we can't destroy him, we're going to destroy something. And that's what they did. And you can quibble all you want about the poor little piggies swan diving into the sea. And why would Jesus let that happen? I don't know, right? <laughs> if that's your question, I don't know. But again, I think it reinforces the extent of the, the demonic power at work here. But here's what it also shows. Jesus was in charge, right? Jesus was in charge of what was happening here. He gave them permission to go do what they did. And and they answered to him. He didn't answer to them. And besides, the far more crucial, crucial question, really, in terms of practical application for us, the real question that I think is worth our time to consider is how the demonized man got that way in the first place. What happened? Now, of course, the Bible doesn't say. There's no backstory. None of the other gospel authors tell us what was going on. So I don't know. I don't know when it started. I don't know how it started. I don't know whose fault it was. If It was he, something he did, something done to him. I don't know. But I do know this. Not only can Satan get a hold of an unbeliever's life, our Bibles say that even though, again, in this case, we don't know when or how it started, it is possible, even as a believer, to give Satan a foothold in your life. It really is. And I don't like telling you that. I don't like thinking about that, but it's true. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me give you one very specific example. Now, I don't believe, as you're turning there, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. As you're turning there, let me say this. I don't believe it's possible for a believer in Jesus Christ to be possessed by a demonic spirit. I I, I don't see that in Scripture. I do believe it's possible, based on where I'm taking you right now, for a, a believer to be oppressed by evil, by an evil spirit because Paul says so right here. And he does it in the most practical and perhaps one of the most familiar ways that it could happen to any one of us. This is what he says, Ephesians chapter four. Now, if you were to back up and read the context, Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians about Christians. He's not writing about the unbelieving world. And this is what he says to you and me as brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, uh, verse 25, Ephesians four twenty-five: laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you with his neighbor, because we're members of one another be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down in your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. An opportunity to do what? <laughs> to wreck your life? To wreck your relationships? To plant a seed in your heart? You know, you get somebody makes you mad, and maybe rightfully so, they did you wrong. And you don't make the choice in the moment to forgive them, even though they didn't ask for it, maybe. But you don't forgive, and you let the Whether it's literally or figuratively, that sun set on your anger and wake up the next morning, nurture it. You know what you've just done? You've allowed a seed of bitterness to be planted in your life. Of of unresolved sin. And and the Bible tells you, man, that sucker will take root. It becomes a root of bitterness. The Bible says when a root of bitterness sets in, it springs up and it defiles all sorts of people who never had anything to do with it in the first place. It's possible to let the seed get planted. and, and And to be nurtured and to grow. In a bad way. And here's the thing. Left unattended in a believer's life, much less an unbeliever, but you know what footholds become? Footholds become strongholds. Left unattended, footholds become strongholds and only Jesus can break a stronghold. Only Jesus can break those strongholds. But you know what the good news is? He does. Who's had enough of bad news this morning, right? Had enough bad news? Let's turn to some good news because there's a third thing this passage tells us. Not only is our, number one, our plight hopeless apart from Jesus Christ, not only, two, do we have an adversary and he's no joke, but the third thing and where this story begins to turn and where bad news gives way to good news is this, our Savior always gets the win. Did you know that? Our Savior, Jesus Christ, always gets the win. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, after Jesus cast the demons into the swine, and the swine run off the, the, you know, the mountain and into the water, it says, verse 14, their herdsmen, the swine's herdsmen, ran away and reported in the city and the country, just as I would have done if I were there too. And it says, the people came to see what it was that had happened, just as people today would if they heard a story like that too. And here's what they found when they got there, verse 15. They came, listen to this, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed. And in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Now compare that description to how how we were introduced to him in verse 3, right? Look at verse 3 again. He had his dwelling among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, even with a chain. Night and day, he's screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself With stones. Luke, in in his account, Luke chapter 8, adds the very interesting tidbit that he hadn't worn clothes for years, all right? I mean, this guy's a mess. And then Jesus shows up. And he's seated, and he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. The very man who had the legion. And they didn't know what to do with it. There's only one possible explanation for such a change, isn't there? And it's this, that he met somebody with more power than the power controlling him. He encountered someone with more authority than what was running and ruling his life, than evil. He met someone who had more power. And that accounts for the change. You know, in my office, there is a stack of... uh, Christianity Today, monthly magazine. I've been getting it for years, and I never read any of them. I just never get around to it. And they're probably going to remain that way, largely, even though they keep coming in, with one exception. Every month for the last few years in Christianity Today, it's it's the only one I'm ever, article, only portion I ever am sure to read, and it's this. A couple of years ago, on the back page, they began doing a portion, a a, a section, simply titled Testimony. And all it is is a two-page autobiographical testimony of someone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. Man, I love those stories. That's why I love Baptism Sunday, the story of how Jesus changes lives. Now, some of those stories, I I always read it right away. Some of those stories are dramatic, and some are very ordinary. And some are are people who are very well-known, and others are people you'd never heard of. There's stories of of an atheist, secular university professor who came to faith in Jesus Christ. There's another one about a former MMA fighter who came to faith in Jesus Christ. There was a, a romance novelist, not a good one, who came to faith in Jesus Christ and began using her gift for the Lord. There's Story after story, there's athletes and there's artists and all sorts of different people. And as I've read those stories and reread those stories and I look forward to reading them every month and as I come across other transformation, salvation stories, I've, I've concluded, and this again, this is not new to me, but I, I love it when the Lord sort of impresses this sort of thing on your heart. All those stories have one thing in common. The particulars of all of our salvation stories, if we're saved, are different. But the turning point is always the same. The turning point comes, the salvation moment comes in any and every person's life when they come to this conclusion, the only thing I can bring to Jesus is my sin. All I've got to offer him is my sin, right? It's not about my awards, my degrees, my accolades, my accomplishments, my gold medals, my trophies, my reputation, When a person finally comes and says, the only thing I've got for Jesus is a a whole pile of sin, a broken life, maybe it's a little bit broken, maybe it's spectacularly broken, but it's all I've got to offer, that's when the change comes. When I realize, as a hymn from a long, long time ago says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. I realize he's my only hope. He's the only solution to my sin Problem to the evil in my life. And here's the thing, because of who Jesus is, the one and only Son of God, and because of what he accomplished at the cross, dying as a sufficient sacrifice for my sin in my place and for yours as well, every single time someone does that, Jesus gets the win. There's never been an exception. There's never been an exclusion. You will not be the first one to violate that rule. Everybody who comes with nothing but their sinful, broken life Jesus gets the win every single time. That's what happened here. Because here's what the Bible says Jesus does when we come to him and say, I've I've got nothing. You must save me. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus justifies us. He sanctifies us. He washes us whiter than snow. He forgives us. He removes our guilt. He indwells us with his Holy Spirit. Changes us, gives us the gift of eternal life. And and, restor- and here's what he did for the man in this story. He restores us to our originally God-designed intended purpose of being image bearers of Almighty God on planet Earth. That's what he does. Pretty good deal, right? <laughs> Pretty good deal. When we come to him and say, I've got nothing to bring but this broken, sinful, evil life. Has he done that for you? I I know that for many of you he has, but has he done that for you? Have you come to the point where you have, in whatever words you've had to use, but in humility you've come to the Lord and said, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross will I cling. I cannot save myself, I can't earn it, I don't deserve it, but I desperately need Jesus Christ. I need to be saved. If not, why not now? Why not today? Again, he's never turned anybody down, and you won't be the first. Has Jesus gotten the win in your life? Are you his? And why not? If not, why not today? Simply, Jesus, save me. That's all it is. Forgive me. Save me. Give me that gift of eternal life. And for those of us who already have, or those of us who perhaps even still this morning will, there's one more thing this scene shows us. As Jesus, in this moment, in this story, demonstrates his authority over the evil and wickedness and brokenness of our world, and it is this. Not only does our Savior always get the win, here's the last thing this story tells us. Our stories, your story, is worth telling. Do you know that? Your story of meeting Jesus, your story of coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ is a story worth being told. See, it's interesting here. If you look at verse 18, let's just look at these last three verses and try to pull all this together. When verse 18 says that as Jesus, he, was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Literally, what the man is asking Jesus to do is make him one of his disciples, There's very similar language to when Jesus first called, and it says he called these 12 to be with him. The man is using the same language. I want to be one of those guys. I see that inner circle thing you've got going on with those 12. I want in. I want to go where you go. I want to see what you do. I want to hear what you say. I want to be where you are. What a great request, right? Jesus, I want to go with you. So I have to think he was extremely bummed when Jesus said no. Look at verse 19. He says, Jesus, I want to go with you. What an incredible cry of the heart. And it says in verse 19, and he, Jesus, did not let him. What's up with that? I mean, serious bummer. No, you can't come with me. We're getting in the boat and we're sailing. You stay here. But Jesus wasn't done yet. There's a but God moment in this verse. And we love but God moments here in this church. There's a but God moment. Because Jesus doesn't leave him hanging. It says he did not let him but But he, but Jesus, but God said to him, here's what I want you to do. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Now, this is interesting because this land, verse 1, the land of the Gerasenes around the the city, the town of, of Gerasa was Gentile country may have been jesus first sort of venture into not primarily jewish country these are not the chosen people of god this is gentile country and and so what it's proper and appropriate to say and what i think jesus is doing here is saying listen you can't be one of my 12 i've got my guys and i've got a plan here's what i want you to do instead i want you to be the first ever christian missionary to the gentile world i've got an assignment for you i've got a plan because listen, man, your story needs to be told. You get to be a missionary. Now that boggles my mind. Because this dude didn't know anything yet. Did you see that? He had not been to Sunday school. He hadn't joined a small group. He, he didn't go to Bible He hadn't even been to church yet. Nothing. Jesus didn't even do him the courtesy of giving him a copy of the four spiritual laws so he could witness to people when he went. He said, No, but you got a story to tell. You have a story to tell. And in this moment, in Jesus' eyes, that was enough for him to be a witness. He was ready. Listen again to what he said Go home to your people. We're all going to do that today. You're going home to your people in about 15 minutes or less. You're going home to your people. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Go. You're good. And he was ready, according to Jesus. Now, I know his story's more colorful than yours. It's certainly more colorful than mine. A lot of of action there, a lot of story to be told. But let me ask you this question. I'm asking it in all sincerity and seriousness. Has Jesus ever done anything great for you? Has Jesus Christ had mercy on you? You just checked both boxes, right? He saved you because he had mercy on you. You have a story to tell. I don't know what happened. I just know this. Once I was blind and now I see. I don't know what happened, I just know this. I was possessed by demonic powers and forces, demons, and now I'm free. I I don't know what happened, I don't know how it happened, but I do know this, I am not the person. I am, old things have passed away, new things have come. If you can check those two boxes, you're a witness. And you're supposed to go to your people and tell them. That's what Jesus is up to here. You've got a story worth telling of how Jesus got the win in your life. And by the way, can I remind you, he didn't give you a choice, or me. Go back to what Greg preached on the first two weeks of the year, the Great Commission. Here's what Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, go. There it is. I have all the authority, what he's showing here in heaven and on earth, so go make disciples. Go tell them about me. Go to your people and tell them that Jesus changed your life. That's the assignment. And he hasn't given us a choice. It's a commandment. It's an instruction. It's also a high honor and great privilege. And you know, in that vein, there's there's one more similarity here, and then we're done. One more similarity between the man in this story that Jesus delivered and it's and and us. And it is this: see, what Jesus knew about this man in giving him this assignment is that he was uniquely fitted to go to his people, because he was one of his people. And he had a story that would resonate with his people because they knew what he used to be like. And now they knew, now they could see what he had become. Jesus said, go to your people, start there. Now you may go other places, but start there. He was a uniquely fitted person to proclaim the good news in his land. And here's what I would contend, so are you. There is a realm in your life, I don't know what it is, where you are the most uniquely fitted, equipped person to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You can do it there because you're known in a way that nobody else can. That's your mission field. That's your assignment. We're supposed to start right there. It's your office. It's your home. It's your classroom. It's your gym club. It's your kids' basketball team. It's wherever. There's a place where you are the single most Uniquely fitted person to talk about Jesus. And you've got a story to tell of what he did for you. And there's one reason we don't do it, and we all know what it is. We are afraid. We're afraid. But what the miracle Jesus did here shows us is, listen, he's already conquered the evil within us. Amen? If you're saved, has he conquered the evil in your life? Yes, he has. What this miracle also shows us is he's mightier than any evil that could confront us. He's got more power than whatever it is I'm scared of. And he has the ability to deal with and overcome the evil in the person's life to whom you speak about Jesus. If he did it for you and he did it for this guy, he can do it for them. He's in charge. Because remember, there's not a square inch, not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, cry out, mine. Or as today's big idea puts it the big idea of this message and this miracle is there is nothing that can match Jesus Christ's authority. Nothing. Nothing can match Jesus'. Authority. And honestly, my heart to yours, here's the deal. The only way these seats fill back up is if we go tell them. That's the only way the kingdom grows. That's the only way the church grows, is if those who know the truth and have the message go out and share the message, tell them about Jesus and the great things he's done for you. Father, thank you that in this room this morning, There are dozens and dozens and dozens of us who can say, Jesus has done a great thing for me. I once was blind, now I see. I once was lost, now I'm found. I once was broken, now I've been healed. I once was destined for a Christless eternity, and now I am eternally saved. Father, thank you that you, through Jesus Christ, have had mercy on us. Father, there's a whole lost city right outside these doors that doesn't have that hope. That doesn't, hasn't heard the story that have yet to believe and you have uniquely positioned each and every one of us in some place in this city to be the image bearer, the messenger of the gospel of salvation of our almighty God. Father, would you persuade us? Would you move us? Would you... Break down the fears in our lives that keep us from speaking the greatest news of all to those around us and cause us to open our mouths and our hearts and tell our stories, the great things that God has done for us and how you've had mercy. Father, take the things of truth this morning and seal them to our hearts, but then move them to our feet and take all the rest and let it slip away so that we leave focused on Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.